Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Jane Mossbacker Morris, founder and CEO of To The Market, a company that she created that connects businesses and consumers to ethically made products from around the world. To The Market works with hundreds of makers from nearly two dozen countries to power an ethical supply chain. And her clients include Target and Bloomingdale's and Dillard's and has a lot of notable investors already. This year, Fortune Magazine also named Jane one of the 25 world's greatest leaders because of her response to COVID-19. Now, usually to the market focuses on apparel and accessories and home goods. But in the face of COVID-19, the company pivoted to PPE and received millions of orders to fill the shortages that hospitals were experiencing globally. On this episode, we discuss how Jane initially worked in the counterterrorism group in the U.S. State Department and how that work ultimately led her down an entrepreneurial path. Jane is also the author of a fantastic book from Penguin Random House called Buy the Change You Want to See. And don't be surprised to see this on Yin's list of favorite things this year. I admire a lot about Jane from her focus and her fortitude and her priority to put service above herself. And when you listen to this episode, you think, okay, Jane is amazing. Where is her failure? Don't worry. We talk about that too. And we discuss how being an entrepreneur and creating to the market has surrounded herself with more rejection and more failure than she's ever seen and how she uses that to fuel her growth. Please enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Jane Mossbacker Morris. Hi, Jane. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for being on. So I have a lot of questions about your fantastic company to the market, which is a wonderful company that you founded and are now CEO to that connects businesses and consumers with really like amazing ethically made products. So before I dive into all the retail questions I have for you, a lot of my listeners really like to hear just from the very beginning of where people grew up and their childhood. So if you don't mind sharing your childhood stories. So I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, and always had really involved parents who really encouraged me not only to be entrepreneurial, which was great. I had a number of entrepreneurial ventures that I kicked off in my childhood, everything from like running a camp, an overnight camp for my little sister and her friends at our Bay House which I like remember making the pitch in our living room to like the parents of my sister's friends. And I'm sure they were like, this is crazy. But anyways, they showed up and we had a weekend camp and it was fantastic to being super involved in the Girl Scouts and like love, love, loving selling Girl Scout cookies, really believing in teaching girls how to sell 
which I think is so important. But I mean, I think the, the big piece that was a part of my childhood for which I'm super grateful was just having parents, both of whom who worked, so having that modeling and then having two parents who were both really committed to service. So they really spent time serving in the community on the local level, on the state level, and on the national level, both in the not-for-profit space, as well as in the public sector and government. And that was really important for me to see as a child that you can have passions that you pursue, but if you infuse that with impact, that you are able to really extend the gifts that you've been given to others. I have two kids and I wish they were as mature as you. They so far are not so well, if they're younger than me, then probably they're not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I sounded anything like this when I was probably your kid's age. I probably was just like, we got to get the camp to work. But as I reflect back, I mean, those are a lot of those sort of lessons that were instilled in me. Service before self. That's a good note for me as a parent. And so where did you decide to go to college? I'm really fascinated by how people pick their college and really that defining decade in the 20s. But where did you go to college and how did you pick it? So I was in high school when 9-11 happened and I ended up going to a high school. It was a boarding school that was in Connecticut. So not super far from New York City. So when 9-11 happened, it had a big impact on me because I was really trying to process how people of faith, which I am a person of faith, a different religion than I think those involved in 9-11, but nonetheless, a person of faith that practices my faith, how someone of faith could get themselves to that place where they felt like carrying out a violent acts against non-combatants, so civilians, was justified. And it wasn't sort of out of like condemnation. Of course, I condemn the act, but I was really deeply curious, like, how do we get here? How do people mentally get in that place? And it was really, terrorism is an intersection of psychology and faith, oftentimes. And so those are two topics that were really interesting to me. And so I decided I wanted to study national security, specifically counterterrorism. And so I applied early to Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. I wanted to be in D.C., I wanted to be hyper-focused on national security, and I felt like that was a great program for me to be a part of, and ultimately attended Georgetown's, they call it SFS, School of Foreign Service, and started really taking advantage of everything that DC has to offer. So I started right out of the gate interning at a think tank called the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. I then went to go work for a development agency called Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MCC, which was sort of a precursor to act on the sustainable development goals. We used to have these things called the Millennium Development Goals. And so the Millennium Challenge Corporation was to help sort of act on those development goals. And then I was able to get an internship my junior year at the State Department in counterterrorism. So sort of squarely where I wanted to be from a professional standpoint and worked there over my junior summer and was sort of relentless about asking for a full-time job. I mean, I like knew I wanted to be there and I feel really sorry for my then boss, Deputy Assistant Secretary Virginia Palmer, if you're hearing this who I've been reconnected with of late, which is great. But I mean, I think literally probably once a week, I was like, can I have a full-time job? (laughs) 
I feel really sorry for her. But I think, thankfully, she and I had a good relationship. Slash, I also think she was like, oh my God, Jane, please go away. That she gave me a full-time job at the beginning of my senior year. So I started working full-time and finishing my senior year full-time. But that's what launched me into most of my 20s was spent focused on working on issues of national security and human security. So after you graduated Georgetown, you stayed within the counterterrorism group? I did. So I stayed for most of my time at the State Department in what was at the time called the Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism, which was under the Secretary's branch. There's all these different offices and divisions in the State Department. But this was at a time that America, for better or for worse, was very active in Iraq and Afghanistan. And interestingly enough, because I think I was one of the only women in that initial group of like 30 people or however many folks were in the office when I joined, and certainly I think the youngest, I took on the portfolio of focusing on engaging women on the issue of terrorism and countering terrorism. So how could they be a part of the solution? What were the tools that we as a government, we're helping to give women in these communities that were being impacted by violence. And that was sort of an unexpected step that then led me to be spending time in these economies with these women and hearing from them firsthand, thank you for your leadership training, or thank you for your advocacy to have us participate in this peace resolution conversation. However, all of this is helpful, but not as helpful as actually having money. And that was a really important and big message for me to hear this idea that money is power. And so if they believed in something, women and wanted to advocate for it, if they didn't have the resources to put towards it, their influence was severely limited. And so it was very early on, even though I didn't know what I was going to do with that information, that that sort of statement was planted in my head, in my heart, where I was like, okay, well, if this is part of changing communities because we are empowering women in a way that's meaningful and them having access to resources is at the core of it. Like we're really addressing fundamental sort of challenges that are preventing them from having the outcomes or even countries having the outcomes we want them to have. What is my role in that? What is my sort of opportunity to add value. And that's really where I began to think about job creation and job sustainment for women. Interesting. And so how long were you at the State Department for? So I left in 2012. There was a transition. At that point, I'd been seconded, which means like you get assigned from your existing office to go work in a different office on a temporary basis. I had been asked to go work in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues to work on national security and human security. So human security is things like domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking. It's literally like the security of your person, you as a human being. And really important exposure for me on issues like human trafficking, domestic violence. How do people find themselves in these situations? What are the barriers to them leaving? But it also was such a reinforcement of the power of finances to influence the outcomes of these dynamics. Going back a little bit, you had mentioned one of the things you were super interested in after high school was thinking about the intersection of psychology and faith. After six years at the State Department, what did you learn and uncover about that in terms of faith-based or psychology-based thinking and anything to unpack in there? One sort of big takeaway was that people's motivations was pretty varied 
there wasn't sort of a single motivating factor that was leading people to decide that terrorism was an effective form of expression or advancement of a political objective. I mean, sometimes it was really specific, like a woman would become a suicide bomber because her husband had been killed in the Iraq war or in some sort of conflict. And she felt like to bring honor to her family, that that was a path that she needed to take versus totally different dynamics where you would have second folks who were living in Europe who were second generation, meaning their parents had come to Europe to live and felt like they weren't accepted in the country, meaning the second generation, meaning the children of the folks who had come to Europe really didn't feel included. They didn't feel part of the European culture and rejected that and therefore wanted to sort of go participate in a cause that maybe they did believe in. So really, really different motivators. I think like with everything, certainly, and I'm not an expert by any stretch on any religion, but I think a lot of times any type of faith can be used for wonderful good and also can be used for evil. And so there's so many different sort of indicators depending on the community, the the type of violent act, the cause, the type of terrorism, etc. So I guess I didn't walk away with any clear answers. I do think though that at the end of the day, if people are feeling included and they have a steady income, they feel like their environment is safe, they feel like social services are being met, meaning they're living in a community where they're safe, they have access to water, things like that, then sort of taking this sort of non-traditional path of participating in terrorism becomes much less likely because suddenly you have a lot more to lose if you're in a very stable environment. So you spent six years at the State Department and then you transitioned after focusing a lot more on like female-focused causes. And I love the quote you have of, if you don't have money, you don't have power. What led you to transition away from the State Department and what did you end up doing after? While I was at State, I did an MBA at Columbia. And that was super helpful because it allowed me to test out a lot of different business models to see if I was to be a part of job creation and job sustainment, what would be the business model that would allow me to do that at scale? It was really, really important for me to harness market forces. And I wanted to harness market forces because I thought that that would lead to the biggest impact that I could have is if I was able to plug in into some sort of private sector industry and leverage that private sector industry to have a positive impact. And so I didn't have a business model that I felt really strongly about coming out of Columbia, ended up leaving the State Department and went to go work for Mrs. Cindy McCain on human trafficking and labor exploitation. And that's when I got a lot more familiar with the retail industry. So that's when I learned about the size of the industry. So retail manufacturing, sometimes it's called in the developing world, the artisan space, is the second largest economy in the developing world. And so agriculture is the largest. This is the second largest. And it's an industry that is dominated by women. So this is a very sort of, this is a women in labor focused space. And so that was sort of hitting the area of interest for me, looking at job creation and job sustainment for women. And then similarly, it had so many operational challenges and social challenges and environmental challenges that I was learning about through human trafficking and labor exploitation 
that I thought, okay, so this is a female-focused industry and it's one that's extremely broken. It's broken operationally, it's broken socially, environmentally. It's one that even if I wasn't passionate about job creation and job sustainment, that there's a lot of room to make improvement. And so that's sort of when I got convinced that that could be an industry that I could build in that could help not only be a scaled business, but really focus on employing sort of the communities that I was most interested in engaging with. Can you share some of the stats that you've learned, whether it's in human trafficking and labor statistics? I mean, I didn't know that the second largest category outside of agriculture is this artisan space. So I'm fairly ignorant in the stats, but would love to learn a little bit more. Last time I checked, I think it's a $32 billion industry, the artisan industry in the developing world alone. And over 70% of garment workers, so those who are working in less ethical factories are in fact women. So super, super female focused industry. And one that was so interesting to me because unlike agriculture, where you've had really thoughtful companies come and make really interesting investments in their supply chains to help make that supply chain more transparent, more sustainable, more ethical. Examples would be Starbucks. Many of those in the chocolate industry have made tremendous strides over the last several years even to help engage small and medium-sized farmers, to help them with their growing practices so that they are more sustainable in the way that they operate and also that they are more ethical in the way that they engage laborers. And then, of course, that's showing up to us as a consumer where we are then learning more about who's growing our coffee and why is it special that it came from Guatemala versus Jamaica and what does single source mean? And we're then willing to sort of pay more for that product because of this investment, we feel connected to that grower. I thought, okay, that is not happening in the retail sector. So it's happening in the ag sector. It's not happening in the retail sector. And yet the retail sector continues to be so broken operationally, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, okay, this is an industry then that does really need help. It needs investment. It needs focus and attention. And there is an opportunity to mirror the progress that has been made in the food and beverage industry around supply chain transparency and around sort of lifting up the workers who are part of making the food and beverages that we enjoy in the fashion industry as well. And so did you come up with the idea to the market or was there a beta business model first before to the market? I came up with to the market when I was traveling, working with anti-human trafficking groups in India, in Cambodia, and even Nepal. I got to know some organizations that were trying to fight trafficking either by employing persons who were vulnerable to trafficking or employing persons who were like survivors that were sort of overcoming the trauma of being trafficked. And they were making really compelling product and not sort of like one-off craft product, but actually product at scale that was compelling aesthetically from a price point standpoint. I mean, really impressive businesses. And I thought, gosh, why are these types of suppliers who are so compelling and have such great product not making it into the US supply chain or even the global supply chain? Like, why is this not sort of a bigger part of the way that the retail industry is set up? And when I had conversations with folks on the client side, meaning buyers, retailers or corporations or brands, I mean, the feedback I got was, I like the idea of working with these non-traditional suppliers and certainly these ethical and sustainable suppliers, but I can't find them. Or if I can find them, I don't have the bandwidth to vet them. Or even if I have the bandwidth to vet them, 
I don't necessarily want to onboard a new supplier if it's just a single supplier versus the way that they currently work oftentimes is they work with these very large brokers who have thousands of factories that tend to be in North Asia or Central Asia. So the idea of going through all of the sort of onboarding lift for a single facility versus being able to work with somebody like a Lian Fung, who is a $10 billion company who has facilities all over the world, just wasn't sort of feasible. And so I thought, okay, so there's an opportunity then for someone to come and build a business around connecting these ethical, untapped ethical suppliers around the world and the untapped demand for ethically made sustainable goods that just for various factors, these two players are not able to figure out how to engage with one another. And so that was really the basis for to the market's business model. And I know that you have since started relationships with Target and Bloomingdale's and a lot of other large retailers. What was your first part of that workflow? Was it to identify the businesses that created the product? Was it to find large buyers? Or what was the steps that you focused on first? So we bootstrapped for about a year and a half just working on our supply chain. So it was really important for me to figure out how each of the suppliers that I had vetted and identified would perform and perform in a lower risk way than before I'm taking somebody to Target, for example. And so I spent a year and a half just bootstrapping with like me and a teammate or two, building out that supply chain, testing them with like small orders, getting feedback, like doing pop-up shops to get feedback from customers to see what's the type of category that's most compelling to you, what type of good. And that was all so valuable because by the time we raised our pre-seed round, which we did in conjunction with Techstars and Target, it was Techstars Retail, and this is 2018, we had so much data about our suppliers and we had a much stronger sort of value proposition around what we were really bringing to the table and the faith that we had in the supply chain that we had spent the last year and a half building. Does to the market focus on a specific type of retail, whether it's consumer packaged goods, clothing, apparel? So we do apparel, accessories, home goods, and PPE. So PPE is, as you can imagine, is a 2020 newbie. But what we found is that cut and sew suppliers are just as capable of making masks and gowns as they are in making t-shirts and tote bags. And so it's been a way for many of the suppliers who have seen tremendous, tremendous sort of dips in demand for traditional retail products, be able to keep their operators employed. What are some of the things that you learned as you were researching and developing to the market, whether it was certain lines of business, any surprises along the way in your research? I think there was a lot more bias than I realized around the perception that people had of non-traditional suppliers. So I think that many people were risk averse. And even though they didn't like the fact that they were reliant on these large factories who had questionable environmental and social footprints, they were afraid that if they went in a different direction, so a smaller facility, a women-owned and operated facility, an artisan group, a fair trade certified factory, that somehow the quality wouldn't be the same, they wouldn't be able to get production capacity. I mean, just a sort of number of concerns that were raised sort of in the initial days. And I think we really had to overcome a lot of those biases. And we still have to overcome those biases where someone will look at us and say, I bet you provide sort of specialty goods. 
And I'm like, yes, we can provide specialty goods. We can also provide incredible producers who can make a million units a month to help sort of create the apparel that you're currently producing in another facility that maybe you're not super proud of. And so really having to communicate that and then prove that the quality is what it is. You have to almost be better than what the previous quality was because they're looking for that imperfection. They're looking for you to sort of make a mistake to confirm maybe what the bias is. What's your goal for to the market? What would you be happy with at the end of the day that you've built? I always say that we want to be the go-to partner for ethical sourcing and manufacturing for brands and retailers around the world. I mean, we want people to think of to the market as like the gold standard for if they want to move in a more sustainable and ethical way that they allow for to the market to manage their supply chain and that we are sort of the industry name for doing that. How big is your team and the company now? So there are, I guess, nine of us at this moment. So nine, nine incredible little ladies, one part-time guy and really, really proud of the team. I mean, they are super, super impressive and like a nice sort of fusion of serious hustle. If you look at our sort of output, given the number of heads we have, it's really, really competitive. And then also just folks who are deeply, deeply passionate about changing the retail industry. Well, I could ask you hours and hours of more questions about to the market and a lot of like the labor statistics that I'm sure you have, but I'll pivot to the general list of questions that I ask all my guests, starting with who or what inspires you? I would say I am inspired, I think, less by who and more by the idea of being a part of changing the trajectory of sort of another generation, meaning that if to the market is able to impact a thousand women in our supply chain, that is then impacting the trajectory of their children. Because by empowering those women, they are then able to make decisions around education for their children, around workforce. I mean, just so many sort of basic things that I certainly take for granted living comfortably in the United States. And to me, that's super, super inspiring. I've had literally since I started the business a photo on the back of my laptop of a girl that I met in a red light district when we were visiting makers who were living in a red light district and they had kids. I mean, kids are just growing up in some of these red light districts. And I keep her on the back of my laptop because it just is sort of a reminder of, okay, the intent is to make change for her mother so that her mother is then able to make change for her. And so it's more of like a goal around just sort of being inspired by that opportunity to even be contributing to that outcome is very exciting to me. I mean, you've inspired me so much already, and hopefully that'll filter through with my kids. But I just love that your North Star and your mission is to just help, which goes back to your original kind of thesis in high school of service before self and so much of what your parents had shared with you. So that's beautiful. It reminds me of the ethos of the Chobani CEO, Hamdi Ulakaya. And I love he said something in a panel once, and it was, we need powerful people in our lives to keep us right. And people like you who really just focuses on that so much just to help. I commend you and I thank you. And I think we're all better off for having people like you in our lives. So thank you so much. Did you have a mentor or role model that really helped shape your mindset or keep you going when you were just uncertain or kind of lost the path a little bit or your focus? Well, I mean, there's been lots of down moments for sure. I mean, 
lots and lots. There are down moments every day. I would say that first and foremost, my husband has been hugely helpful because he's also a entrepreneur and has been sort of running his business longer than I have been running mine. And so he is sort of far ahead of me in sort of the stage of the business. And that's been hugely helpful because he's then able to sort of give me guidance on when he went through this process, what he did. And so that has been a huge, huge value add. And then both my parents continue to be really great sounding boards. They keep me honest. They keep me very, very honest. And they're great at giving me feedback and really pushing me on sort of asking why I'm making certain decisions and what outcome I'm trying to achieve, which is really helpful because I think one of the challenges that entrepreneurs often have is that you start getting success and then you start making inauthentic decisions because you feel like that's what you're supposed to do. And so trying to really push myself to ask myself, why am I making this decision? Why am I applying for that? Or why do I want this person involved? Or why do we want to do that deal? Like, what is, is this ego? Is this like, what is this? And so having two parents who are extremely loving, but also like no holds bar in the feedback <laughs> that they provide me and, and sort of testing and pushing me on like, is this about you, Jane? Or is this about what you're trying to build? Or is this about your investors? I mean, really continuing to push service before self in all sorts of ways has been hugely valuable. It's a good reminder that it's hard to get good feedback. And so if I'm going to keep being a good parent, then I'll continue to have that feedback loop given. I'm curious because you'd mentioned there's so many down moments and we haven't talked about it much, but I'd love to just hear you opine a, a little bit in terms of just hardship or struggle along the way, whether it's to the market, whether it was in your internships or college or any of your learning experiences, but would love to just hear more about those down moments, which you had mentioned you have a really great support network. But for those who don't have it, just to hear it and to see or hear how you went through it. And to the market, there have been loads of down moments. I mean, not closing deals that we thought we would close, not hitting revenue numbers that we wanted to hit, not getting investment that was promised to us. I mean, I could write a book about the short time that we've been in business and all of the sort of challenges. And I think most entrepreneurs face these challenges. And I think actually talking about it is so important because if I didn't have somebody like my husband or some of the CEOs that were in Techstars with me or just a community to sort of go back and forth with and confide in, I would feel like a massive failure. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone said they would invest and they didn't. Like, I just must be a terrible entrepreneur or I can't believe that this deal fell through. Or if I didn't have community to come and say like, no, this happens to everybody all the time, then I think I would really be struggling. But I mean, even with having folks be like, that's part of the game, get used to it. It still doesn't mean it's not hard. It is hard. And I think at the end of the day, you have to sort of ask yourself how passionate am I about solving this problem that I want to sort of go through the pain of building the business. I mean, building an organization, building a business or a nonprofit is extremely painful. Like it is traumatizing spiritually, physically, emotionally, because you just have, there's tremendous uncertainty. You have so many people who tell you a million different ways why your business or your nonprofit stinks. It's hugely competitive. Fundraising is really, really hard. I mean, there's just so many things that are really, really hard about it. And I am grateful that I'm 
have built a scalable business that is aligned with something I feel passionately about. If I was making widgets and I had to go through sort of the brain damage that is a part of being an entrepreneur, like I don't know if I could do it. I mean, because at the end of the day, you have to come back to the mission and ask yourself, am I actually having the outcome that I thought I was going to have, which in our case, it has to be scalable business. It has to be a profitable business, meaning that like, it's not just a not-for-profit in sort of the clothing of a for-profit. And is it creating ethical hours of work for people? If the answer continues to be yes, it does, then that continues to inspire me to move forward. So I think you have to go back to asking yourself if you're helping to solve what you are passionate about addressing. What are you most proud of so far? I think I am probably most proud of, I wrote this book that Penguin Random House ended up publishing in January of 2019 called Buy the Change You Want to See. And that was all about conscious consumerism and, and how it can be for everybody, all walks of life, all political views, all socioeconomic levels. The book is owned by the business. And getting somebody like a Penguin Random House to sort of anoint our thesis, our business thesis was a huge source of strength for me and really was wonderful affirmation to hear that, yes, this is a really important topic. Like, yes, we believe in what you're doing. Yes, we want to support you as being a voice on this topic. And so that's something that I continue to be grateful for. And actually, we're releasing a new chapter about conscious consumerism during sort of crisis, which just sort of talks about what our journey as a business has been like in 2020 during COVID and just sort of calling out creative ways that entrepreneurs can sort of thrive when the outside environment is very challenging. Please send it to me because I would love to read it. And I'm not surprised that Penguin Random House picked it up because you're finding a new way to do business, but it's putting humanity and social issues and connection first, which sounds like it should be fundamentally what should happen, but in reality is not. So I could see why they picked it up and has done quite well. You've talked a bit about hardship and struggle, but can you share what's maybe your biggest growth moment through this whole process, whether it was learning about counterterrorism, working for the State Department, starting the business, but what do you think is one of your, or if the biggest growth moment that you can share? I have, as all entrepreneurs, I think, experienced, there is just so much rejection as a part of your journey. Just you get rejected from people you want to hire. You get rejected from clients who don't necessarily want to move forward with you or your product. Endless loads of rejection from investors. That was really hard for me at first because I was used to, if I input A, I will output B. If I study for the test, then I will get a hundred. If I train really hard, then I will be able to run the marathon or whatever it is. And so the fact that there was so much outside of my control and that rejection was going to be a part of my experience was really, really hard for me at first, because I mean, to be completely candid, I had the opportunity of not having to experience a ton of rejection. I had been just sort of very hyper-focused on, okay, this is where I want to go to college. So I'm going to study really hard and do what I can and then get myself in. And then for MBA, Columbia, same thing. I'm going to study really hard on my GMAT and prep for my interview and do really well. I mean, it's sort of like, it's much more linear or it's somewhat more linear. And I remember hearing the first time that a client told us no, 
this was very early on and this was like a big client. And I thought we were such a natural fit for them. And they ended up telling us no. And I remember it was like somebody just punched me in the gut. I mean, it was sort of devastating because I was like, in my head, I was like, what? How would they like not see the value of what we're doing? And now we get no's all the time because I'm now much more comfortable pitching. And so we're casting a much wider net. So of course, getting more no's, but meaning I'm getting no's a lot because I'm pitching all the time. And the lesson that my husband helped sort of actually instill in me is like, you need to be getting a lot of no's, getting closer to a yes, because so much of this is a numbers game. Like it is just a function of, you do have to pitch a hundred investors to find those like two who are going to actually deploy capital into your business. And so that was a really important lesson for me that I have to be more vulnerable to rejection. Rejection is a hundred percent, a large part of this experience. And the majority of people are going to say no. There's a great book. Have you read it called The Messy Middle? No. By Scott Belsky. And it talks about how people focus on the start and the finish, but there's all that mess in between. And generally people think entrepreneurs, it's yes, it's hard and it's kind of like a J curve where it's hard and it goes down, but then it's up and to the right after that. And in fact, it's a lot of squiggly lines. <laughs> and so a lot of rejection, a lot of failure, a lot of success, but then it doesn't just keep going, it dips back down. And so it's a roller coaster of emotion. But I love that people who are really passionate about it keep going through it. But the first no, it, the way you describe it, I'd want you to have that feeling where at the end of Pretty Woman, where she comes back with the bags and she goes, big mistake, big. Remember me? <laughs> it's the idea totally. that for all the, all the people that have rejected you, it kind of ignites you further to keep doing it. So it's a bit of fuel, which can be good. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. What's next for Jane Mossbacker Morris? Well, I think we are excited about continuing the growth that we experienced in 2020 into 2021. It's been one of the sort of rays of sunshine from COVID is that people have really decided that they need to have a more diverse supply chain. And so relying on a single country, particularly China, is not the safest route because you just don't know how geopolitics are going to ultimately impact your ability to source goods. And so for us, that's been very helpful because we've been able to say, hey, we have a syndicated supply chain. We're in over 40 countries. What's great is that if there are geopolitical dynamics in any of these countries, that we have lots of other alternatives in which you can engage. Similarly, I think a lot of the conversations that have taken place in 2020 about racial justice and just sort of justice in general have reinstilled a commitment by executives to ask, what am I doing as a business to live up to the values that I espouse as a human being? And so that is then forcing people to sort of take a hard look at their supply chain and say like, okay, I'm claiming that I believe ABC, but who is making my products and what is their experience in doing so? And so that, again, is a great opportunity for to the market because we're then able to say like, we would love to help extend your values through your supply chain. Um, there's so many ways that companies can double down on their commitment to women or double down on their commitment to a certain community or to sustainability. And so that has been, again, a silver lining in all of the sort of really tough times that we've experienced during COVID in 2020. Well, there's many CEOs, but I think there's only a rare amount or a handful that really put the consumer first. And look how those have ended up now, including folks like Amazon. So it's a slower grind in the beginning, but I think ultimately with a passion forward mission, those are ultimately very successful. So I 
wish you the best of luck. Where can people find out more about you and To The Market? You can find more about To The Market at tothemarket.com. And you can follow our journey at Let's Go TTM. And Buy the Change You Want to See, which is the book I wrote, is available online in sort of national retailers, Target, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, indie stores. Just go to penguinrandomhouse.com and you can find a list of businesses that are carrying the book. So you wrote a book, Buy the Change You Want to See. Can we talk through the idea and how you got picked up by Penguin Random House? I'd love to hear that story. So writing a book is such a weird experience. It takes a really long time. And again, it gets back to this better be a labor of love. Otherwise, like you might ask yourself why you're doing it. So I decided I wanted to write a book about the same time that the market became a corporation. So late 2016, I identified an author who would help, who had written published books previously, who would help sort of be my co-writer to help me put together a proposal. It took me, gosh, maybe three to four months to put together a proposal. So we got that to a literary agent, which is also a step. Oftentimes, if you want to be published by another publisher, finding a literary agent is super important. And so we got that to the literary agent in early 2017 for her to sort of sort through and begin shopping. We accepted Penguin Random House's bid on May 24th, which happened to be my birthday of 2017, which was a great birthday gift. Then we got the contract, which is super typical. Traditionally, you'll get the offer, you'll accept the offer, and you don't get a contract for like three months. So we got a contract in August of 2017. I wrote the book with Wendy Paris, who was my co-writer from really that August until it was due January of 2018, which is a really fast turnaround time because normally you get like 12 months. We got like six months. And then you go through these rounds of revisions. I think we had rounds of revisions between Penguin and us through maybe May or June. And then it published in January of 2019. So anybody who wants to do a traditional publishing route, just be aware that you're talking about almost a three-year process from ideation to publication. Well, I love the title, Buy the Change You Want to See, but also you inspire me to be the change I want to see. So you embody both. And I thank you for your time and sharing your story. Well, thank you. Thank you.